Okay, so this is uh, Canto 4, Chapter 22, Pritja Maharaj's meeting with the four Kumaras, Text 51, on October 14, 2020, in Hawaii, over the internet. Palam. Result. Brahmani. Brahmani. In the absolute truth. In the absolute yeah. truth. Sanyasya. Sanyasya. Giving up. Giving up. Nirvisanga. Without being contaminated. Without being contaminated. Completely dedicated. Karma. Activity. Adyaksham. Superintendent. And. Manvanaha. Always, I'm sorry, always thinking of. Always thinking of. Atmanam. The super soul. Super soul. Prakrite. Of material nature. Of material nature. Param. Transcendental. Transcendental. Srila Prabhupada's translation. Maharaj Prithu dedicated himself to be an eternal servant of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, transcendental to material nature. Consequently, all the fruits of his activities were dedicated to the Lord, and he always thought of himself as the servant of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who is the proprietor of everything. Srila Prabhupada's purport. The life and dedication of Maharaj Prithu in the transcendental loving service of the Supreme Personality of Godhead serve as a good example of karma yoga. The term karma yoga is often used in Bhagavad Gita, and herein Maharaj Prithu is giving a practical example of what karma yoga actually is. The first requirement for the proper execution of karma yoga is given herein, palam brahmani sanyasya, or vinyasya. One must give the fruits of his activities to the supreme brahman, parabrahman, Krishna. By doing so, one actually situates himself in the renounced order of life, sannyasa. As stated in Bhagavad Gita 18.2, giving up the fruits of one's activities to the Supreme Personality of Godhead is called sannyasa. Kamyanam karmanam nyasam sannyasam kavayo vidhu sarva karma palatvagam prabhus tvagam vichakshanaha To give up the results of all activities, is called renunciation, tiaga, by the wise. And that state is called the renounced order of life, sannyasa, by great learned men. Although he was living as a householder, Prithimaraj was actually in the renounced order of life, sannyasa. This will be clearer in the following verses. The word nirvisanga, uncontaminated, is very significant because Maharaj Prithu was not attached to the results of his activities. In this material world, a person is always thinking of the proprietorship of everything he accumulates or works for. When the fruits of one's activities are rendered to the service of the Lord, one is actually practicing karma yoga. Anyone can practice karma yoga, but it is especially easy for the householder who can install the deity of the Lord in the home and worship him according to the methods of bhakti yoga. This method includes nine items, hearing, chanting, remembering, serving, worshiping the deity, praying, carrying out orders, serving Krishna as friend, and sacrificing everything for him. Shravanam Kirtanam Vishnu, Smadanam Padasevanam, Archanam Vandanam Dasyam, Sakyam Atmani Vedanam. Srimad Bhagavatam 7.5.23. And that, of course, was spoken by Prahlad Maharaj to his father. <laughs> These methods of karma yoga and bhakti yoga are being broadcast all over the world by the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, Anyone can learn these methods simply by following the examples of the members of a society. In one's home or in a temple, the deity is considered the proprietor of everything, and everyone is considered the deity's eternal servant. The Lord is transcendental, for he is not part of this material creation. The words prakriti param are used in this verse because everything within this material world is created by the external material energy of the Lord. But the Lord himself is not a creation of this material energy. The Lord is the supreme superintendent of all material creations as confirmed in the Bhagavad Gita 
This material nature is working under my direction, O son of Kunti, producing all the moving and unmoving beings, and by its rule this manifestation is created and annihilated again and again. All material changes and material progress taking place by the wonderful interaction of matter are under the superintendence of the Supreme Personality of Godhead Krishna. Events in the material world are not taking place blindly, if one always remains a servant of Krishna and engages everything in his service, one is accepted as Jivan Mukta, a liberated soul, even during this lifetime within the material world. Generally, liberation takes place after one gives up the body, but one who lives according to the example of Prithu Maharaj is liberated even in this lifetime. In Krishna consciousness, the results of one's activities depend on the will of the Supreme Person. Indeed, in all cases, the result is not dependent on one's own personal dexterity, but is completely dependent on the will of the Supreme. This is the real significance of Palam Brahmani Sanyasya. A soul dedicated to the service of the Lord should never think of himself as the personal proprietor or the superintendent. A dedicated devotee should prosecute his work according to the rules and regulations described in devotional service. The results of his activities are completely dependent on the supreme will of the Lord. Palam Brahmani Sanyasya Nirvisanga Samahitaha Karma Dyaksham Chamanvanam Atmanam Prakrite Param. Maharaj Prithu completely dedicated himself to be an eternal servant of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, transcendental to material nature. Consequently, all the fruits of his activities were dedicated to the Lord, and he always thought of himself as the servant of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who is the proprietor of everything. So, Srila Prabhupada writes in the first canto of the Bhagavatam that the need of the soul is freedom. We want to be free. We want to be free because that is our eternal position, to be free. So, people try for freedom in many ways. People try for freedom uh, by political arrangements, uh, having some sort of form of government where the government is not very uh, much in control of the citizens, where the citizens have a lot of say, like in China. I don't know if it's true anymore, but the government used to dictate what kind of occupation you could have. Uh, they're still dictating to some extent how many children you can have. So people want to be able to make their own decisions, do what they want, go where they want. Uh, and they try to do that by political arrangements. They try to do that by uh, making a lot of money or having a high status in society, by having friends who respect their autonomy, uh, by amassing a lot of power themselves. <laughs> so not only not being under dictators, they try to themselves uh, come in a position of being a dictator by being very healthy uh, in so many ways that people or not having a lot of commitments People try to have freedom by not having a family or not having a job where they have to go into a certain location at a certain time. So in so many ways, people try to be free. And then those who are a little bit more intelligent try to be free by a process of yoga. So there's four main processes of yoga, which can also be mixed with each other. These are karma yoga, bhakti yoga, gyan yoga, and dhyan yoga. And... In this particular verse and purport, we're talking about primarily karma yoga, but also karma yoga and bhakti yoga. So some mix here, karma mishra bhakti. So some mix here of karma yoga and bhakti yoga. And we'll just very, very briefly touch on gyan yoga and dhyan yoga. That through gyan yoga, one gets liberation by adjusting how one perceives the world and oneself intellectually. And as I say quite a bit, Gyan Yoga is becoming very popular in the modern world. There are many, many books and courses and uh, organizations dedicated to becoming free by Gyan Yoga. Becoming, as Prabhupada uses the term in this purport, a Jivan Mukta. Prabhupada will say that it says in this purport, generally liberation comes after death when we give up the body. That's when one can be liberated, but it's possible to be liberated in this life. So through Gyan Yoga, people try to be liberated by just saying, you know, I'm not these thoughts, I'm not these feelings, I am the soul, I am the observer. A lot of the mindfulness 
training has to do with Gyan Yoga. And then there's Gyan Yoga. In Gyan Yoga, one uh, sits in a certain way, breathes in a certain way, lives in a certain way, and the mechanical arrangement of the human body is made. So if one does that, one can more and more put the mind in a steady state, and in that steady state, as soon as the mind is still, uh, Bhakti began, Swami was speaking about this at a Japa seminar the other day, as soon as the mind is still, which is its natural position in Sattva Gun, the mind is a product of Sattva Gun, then one can perceive the self and the super-self, and one again becomes uh, liberated. So we might ask, uh, before we go on to what we're discussing here, Karma Yoga and Bhakti Yoga, and of course it's of some interest that Srila Prabhupada is apparently promoting Karma Yoga in this purport. We might ask, well, what does it mean to be free? So Krishna explains this in a discussion on Jnana Yoga in the Bhagavad Gita, where he says that you always see the truth. You always see things as they are. You see the real self by the pure mind. You relish and rejoice in self. And one is not disturbed by anything in the world. One's, and, and Krishna repeats this in many places in the Bhagavad Gita, of course, in the book, fifth chapter, one's pleasure is within, and so forth, that one sees the world as the property of God, one sees sarvakalam idam brahma, one sees that everything is brahman, everything is spirit, I am spirit, and one sees everything is happy, everything is happily situated, everything is perfectly situated. And one is not bound. One is not bound by the modes of nature. Uh, the modes of nature are not forcing us to do things. The big question that Arjuna has, you know, why are we forced to do things that we know we don't want to do? You know, somebody's trying to lose weight and they go eat some cake anyway. They eat, the, you know, the first piece and the second piece and the third piece. Why do they do that? You know, they want to lose weight. They're not comfortable carrying around all this extra uh, body. And, and yet they, they can't. They eat the extra cake anyway. The person doesn't want to smoke, and they smoke anyway. A person, you know, doesn't want to watch porn. It's ruining their, their marriage, and they watch it anyway. Uh, you know, we, we don't want to uh, lose our temper and yell at someone. We do it anyway. So and this is the control of the modes of material nature that are pushing us around, uh, yes, with our lust, anger, and, and greed, uh, particularly our desire to enjoy the world. So to be liberated is to liberate, be liberated from this pushing and pulling of the modes. The modes are still there, but one no longer identifies with them, one no longer has lust, anger, and greed, one's no longer attached to any lust, anger, and greed that may appear in the body, one is simply situated as the observer. One's, one's no longer conditioned by the world. One's body may still be conditioned by the world. One still has a physical body, the Jivan Mukta. But the physical body, the actions and the urgings of the physical body are not, there's no response on the part of the soul that, oh, I have to obey these urgings of the body. And it's not a question of repression. It's a question of detachment. It's a question of detachment. So one just has no inclination. Uh, we could think of it something like uh, we've all encountered very uh, nasty people in our lives and sometimes we just kind of tune them out. <laughs> you know, we, we know they're there and we just tune them out. Or if you live, like here we live near a highway which makes a lot of noise and mostly you just don't even notice it. It becomes in the background. It's just, oh yeah, it's there. You know, or there's a train going by regularly or something like that. You just simply don't, uh, you don't pay attention to it. It's not, it's not important. Yes, and one has an inner life of spirituality. And one, of course, in this inner life of spirituality has a sense of unbounded joy. Sattva Gun is very happy, but it's, it's with boundaries. So in the liberated state, one has unbounded joy experienced directly by the soul, by transcendental senses. So what are we realizing in a state of liberation? We're realizing that everything is spirit, that the Lord is everywhere, that the Lord is good, that the Lord is the proprietor, the Lord is the controller. I mean, for the uh, those whose realization, whose liberation is in Brahman, uh, they're realizing this in an impersonal way. 
and those whose realization whose liberation is in Padamatma, they're realizing it just in terms of the material energy, whereas those whose realization it deals with Bhagavan, one is realizing the pastimes of the Lord in the spiritual world as well as his relationship to the material world. So generally, karma yoga relates to either the Visvarupa of the Lord or to the Brahman. So usually people who attain liberation through karma yoga are not involved with the Bhagavan form of the Lord. That is the traditional understanding of karma yoga that you see the... And we have a lot of this kind of talk going on uh, in the world today too. You know, the, the truth is the universe. We want to be in harmony with the universe. We want to give everything to the universe. We want to be in sync with the universe. We understand the universe as being abundant and, and good and the universe is providing what we want. We get in sync with the universe and so forth. So this is very much the, the conception of the Visharupa, the, the form of the Lord as the universe. And karma yoga means I see myself as a part of that form, as Prabhupada mentions in the Bhagavatam that we're each a cell in this universal body. And that when I play my role within the universe, then I become free. You know, the, the function of each cell in my body is to nourish itself, of course, but to nourish itself in the service of the body as a whole and to fulfill its function in the body as a whole. And a cell that doesn't do that, a cell that is simply serving itself, is called cancerous. So the concept of karma yoga is that this giving away the fruits, a karma palatyaga, uh, this is the method of liberation. And Krishna says that one becomes peaceful when one gives away the fruits of one's work. And one's supposed to give away, I mean, at a very low level in karma, not karma yoga, you're just giving away the fruits, say, to charity or even to your family. Now we have that example of the in the 11th canto, I think it was the Ivanti Brahmana, who was such a miser that he wouldn't even give the results of his work, he wouldn't even share them with his family. So at least if you're going to work in the world, you get a family. This concept of a single life with a career was is not part of Varnashram at all. So you, at least you have a family, you're sharing the results of your work with your family, you're giving in charity, you're giving in charity even to the snakes and the frogs and the bugs in the environment around you, as if they were your own children, and you're giving in charity in the human population. And ideally, you're also giving something to the Lord. Now, maybe you're giving it indirectly, you know, you're paying taxes to a government that's sponsoring yagyas, and so you're giving something indirectly to the Lord. So that's karma. And karma yoga is all the fruit of one's work is given to the Lord, is given to the proprietor. So, all of them. So, of course, what do we get from our work? Well, we hear this and we think, well, this means all my salary, you know, all my profit I give to the Lord. Then how do I live? How do I survive? But as we were saying, a cell within the body has to maintain its own existence as well in order to be of service to the body. An employee within a company has to eat or can't serve the company. The employee doesn't live in the office. It has The employee lives in his or her own living facility and has to pay uh, their own mortgage or rent or whatever in order to serve the company. But the mood is that everything I'm doing is for the benefit of the company. Everything I'm doing is for the benefit of the whole body. Everything I'm doing is for the benefit of the universe. Uh, this is the concept. And it's not only the money that one earns, because we get a lot of fruits of our work other than just cash. Some of us may not be getting any cash from our work. We get fame and respect, uh, which is very much connected to a sense of community, society, friendship, and love. We may get uh, beauty. You know, our work may make us more beautiful, more effulgent, our work may give us an environment where we're living in, in a beautiful situation because of our work. Uh, we get strength and health and vitality from our work. Some people do work that specifically contributes to their own good health and vitality. We may get knowledge from our work. We learn practically anyone's work results in some kind of knowledge. 
that they're gaining in. Uh, we may get directly freedom from our work in terms of, you know, we're not so tied down to a particular uh, place. So we get many different uh, sorts of opulences from our work in addition to just cash. We may get uh, power. We are talking about how people want freedom through power. We may get power. We may have people who listen to us. We may have uh, subordinates or employees or, or something like that where we have some or we may have some power over something in the world. So these are all the fruits of our work. The, the sense of inner satisfaction that we get, the sense of, of fun, of play, of joy, of satisfaction, of accomplishment. So these are all the fruits of our work. And these fruits of our work accrue to us not only at the end of a payday, they are accruing to us uh, from moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. And if we give the fruits of our work to the supreme proprietor, of, of our work, we become peaceful and we become free. So how does that work? Well, we get a sense of the fact that we're dependent on the Lord for the results of our work. It's interesting, the Prabhupada says a sentence how, you know, we're we have this dependence in karma yoga and then he says, well, everyone is dependent. So everyone is dependent on the Lord for the results they get from their work just like each cell in my body, doesn't have the capacity to maintain itself except by my grace. Right? If part of my body is cut off, it no longer has the capacity to maintain itself. So in one sense, each cell of my body is contributing to the health and the strength, etc. of my body. And in another sense, every cell of my body gets its ability to function by, by the fact that I'm breathing as a whole and I'm eating as a whole and I'm moving as a whole. Uh, like that. So in one sense, we appear to be serving the Lord and doing things for the Lord. And in another sense, everything we get is actually due to the grace of the Lord. So whatever results we get are always the Lord's grace. They're never, uh, we're one of the five factors of action, but they're never completely dependent on us. And we all know this very well. We all know this very well that we can do you know, everything right and work really hard, and it's a catastrophe. You know, this happens in every sphere. You work hard at a business, your business fails. People work hard at a marriage, the marriage fails. You work hard at raising children, the children go bad. You work hard at your health. I, I met a gentleman once who was, you know, had been in top, top, top physical shape and then got into a car accident, and his health was, was really devastated by that. So, you know, we all know that. We all know that, you know, I can work to accumulate knowledge and I get a brain tumor, right? The son of a friend of mine who was a genius, you know, went to college when he was, I don't know, like 13, and then he got a brain tumor. Thankfully, he, he recovered from it. But when he had the brain tumor, he lost the ability to read. Yes, yeah, so we know that the results of what we're doing, it, they're not dependent on us. And in Karma Yoga, one acknowledges this. And so immediately we become peaceful. I mean, it just makes logical sense, right? When we acknowledge reality, instead of fighting against reality, we become peaceful. We become detached. The anxiety and the attachment are from thinking, I'm the proprietor, I'm the controller, when we're not. Trying to control and own something that's not mine. Like Prabhupada talks about how a thief is always in anxiety. They're trying to own something that's not theirs. So at any moment, it's going to be taken away. So in karma yoga, one has a full sense that everything is owned by the Lord, that I'm working for Him. This full sense that the Lord is the proprietor, this full sense that all the results go to Him. And then, interestingly enough, one is not getting one's happiness exactly from the results. One's getting one's happiness from the process of giving the results to the Lord. And one starts to enjoy within. Aha! That's liberation. That's liberation. One, that one is no longer conditioned by anything external. That one's happiness is within. I mean, it's interesting that one of the ways people try to become free is by the material opulence of renunciation. You know, not having relationships or not having committed relationships. You know, having jobs with flexible work hours or lots of travel or, 
or things like that. But that's just one. That's just one of the material opulences. If one has one of the, any of the six opulences under Durga Devi, but that one is particularly attractive because while external circumstances can take away our beauty or our health or our leadership ability or our fame, it's pretty hard for external circumstances to take away even our material opulence of renunciation. But we all find that even that we don't have complete proprietorship over. Right? Krishna can always put us in some situation where our material opulence of renunciation fails us like Vishwamita Muni with Menaka. Whereas when one is really enjoying happiness within and is really not dependent on any external circumstances for one's happiness, that kind of renunciation is under the spiritual energy and that kind of energy, that kind of renunciation is real freedom and is real happiness. That is actual joy. And this state of liberation this state of Jivan Mukta can be experienced in this body if one works in that consciousness. Now, we do find, uh, especially religions, more than spiritual groups, but especially religions who do propound this kind of karma yoga, do everything for the sake of God, uh, we find spiritual organizations or pseudo-spiritual organizations that talk about this in terms of the universe. We do find some religions that talk about this in terms of God, uh, but there's usually this mix of karmakanda, that if you do everything for the purpose, for the pleasure of God, you'll go to heaven. Whereas karma yoga is, is different from karmakanda. So I, I haven't seen too many personalistic religions that are teaching karma yoga in terms of Bhagavan. That's in the whole religious spiritual marketplace of 2020. I don't see that very often. But this concept that I'm going to do karma yoga not for the universe and it's not going to be karma kanda with the idea of going to some sort of heaven, uh, but I'm going to work for the pleasure of a personal God. And as soon as you bring in personal God, as soon as you bring in Bhagavan, you've got some touch there of bhakti. There, there's something there of bhakti. Something is combined there that, that bhakti is introduced. And Srila Prabhupada is talking about introducing bhakti in terms of having home deity worship and engaging in the processes of bhakti as defined by Prahlad Maharaj in the Srimad Bhagavatam, Shravanam, Kirtanam, Vishnu, Svanam, etc. Now, bhakti yoga is in itself a complete system for liberation. That if one is worshipping the Lord and one is going through these processes of bhakti yoga, one also gets to this point of having internal happiness that's not dependent on any material circumstances, seeing oneself as a soul, and therefore not being conditioned by the modes of material nature. Now in bhakti yoga, one sees oneself as a soul in a very specific personal way. Oh, I'm Krishna's friend, I'm Krishna's servant, I'm Krishna's beloved, and so forth. And one starts to have that inner reality as one source of satisfaction. And in that case, it's so attractive and maya is so unattractive. Maya meaning doing things for myself. Maya, maya meaning being a cancer cell. That naturally one is liberated. And here uh, Prabhupada's looking at, at both of them together. Now, this, this purport definitely seems to be pushing uh, karma misra bhakti, some mix of karma yoga and bhakti yoga. But of course, even if one is doing pure bhakti yoga, within pure bhakti yoga, there are activities, there's philosophy, and there's meditation. So the bhakti yogi does meditate. Smaranam means meditation. So it's not a mechanical meditation as is being done in dhyana yoga. It's not on the super soul, but it's on Bhagavan. The bhakti yogi is doing jnana in the terms of studying philosophy and gaining some detachment through philosophy, but it's a philosophy centered around the personality of Godhead, not so much with the aim of getting detached from maya, but with the aim of getting attached to the person. And the bhakti yogi is certainly dedicating all the fruits of their actions to the Lord, but not for the sake of liberation, for themselves, uh, but for the sake of love. 
And so the liberation occurs as a byproduct. You know, in a, in a marital relationship, if the wife is doing everything for the pleasure of the husband and the husband is doing everything for the pleasure of the wife, uh, so their sense of security in being cared for by, another, by the other is a side effect. You know, they're saying, oh, I'm going to come home to a nicely cooked meal, or, oh, you know, my spouse is going to be paying the bills. and You know, they have, they have a sense of security, a sense of freedom from anxiety, that this is someone I can count on to be there for me. But that's, that's a concomitant factor. You know, we're speaking ideally, of course. Uh, obviously, material marriages don't exactly work like that. But that's the concept of it that if I'm doing everything out of love, that I naturally get a sense of security. I naturally get a sense of freedom from anxiety. And that's actually true with Krishna, who's the supreme, you know, lovable object. Or it's true for a child, right? If a child is, is trying to make the parents happy and serving the parents, the parents just naturally take care of them. And they naturally have freedom from anxiety. So in bhakti yoga, liberation is compared to like a maidservant standing anjali with folded hands. How may I serve you? How may I serve you? So the devotee is not focused on this liberation. In fact, if the goal of the bhakti yogi is liberation, if the goal is jivan mukta, then it's not pure bhakti. <laughs> You've got something else mixed with it. You know, if a person says, well, I'm, I'm marrying you so that you'll take care of me. You know, you're kind of like, well, that... That isn't really the idea. I mean, of course, it goes on all the time. We work for a company, we work for a business, so they'll pay us. But ideally, we work for a business because we're inspired by that business. We're inspired by their mission. We're inspired by their product. And we want to work for the business because we want to further the mission of the business. And the pain that we get and the perks we get are, are on the side. Ideally. Speaking, everyone's work should be like that, that people are not working for the result, they're working for the business itself. So with Krishna, it can actually be like that. Now, what perhaps is, is particularly interesting here is this concept of sannyasa. So sannyasa can be understood, of course, as the fourth stage in, in ashram dharma. And sannyasa can be understood uh, primarily in terms of sex and money, the two big bugaboos for conditioned souls. You know, when I was uh, going to graduate school, so uh, I remember in one of our classes, each of us had to research a particular area of school management. We had to do field research. And uh, I was given, we were picked out of a hat, I was given finances, probably my least the area of the least interest for me. So I had to interview nine different financial managers of nine different school districts in North Carolina and report about school finance. And one of the main things that came up over and over again in my interviews and in my research was how money is one of the main ways that people become corrupted. It's one of the main things that is very carefully monitored. And the other one, of course, is sex. So that people are corrupted by sex and money. So the ashram dharma is dealing pretty much just with sex and money, or food also. There's a lot, particularly in the Vanaprastha ashram and the sannyas ashram, that has to do with food. Of course, food is very much connected also with, with money. So in the brahmachari ashram, you eat only when you're called, you don't have personal money, you give everything to the guru, and you don't engage in sex. In the Grahasta Ashram, you engage in sex just with your spouse, and the idea is that you're engaging in sex with your spouse to produce good population for the world. You make money in an honest occupation that is according to your proclivity, and you use that occupation and your wealth for the benefit of society. Then in Vanaprastha, you may or may not still stay with your spouse, but you give up the gross and eventually the subtle forms of the sexual relationship, and you stop earning money. I mean, everyone understands when you say, I've retired, <laughs> that means you stop earning money. And there's different ways of getting one's food as a vanaprastha. And as sannyas, we talk about the four stages of sannyas. It's, to a large extent, in terms of food. 
and what you need. You know, the family brings your food out to the cottage on the side of the village, or you go from place to place begging for food. We have Madhav Mandupuri, of course, who traveled alone and didn't ask anyone for food. If they gave him food, he ate it. If they didn't give him food, he would fast. And in the sannyas ashram, uh, you have no connection, even a subtle connection with your spouse, and one's completely free from any kind of sexual behavior. Uh, so we think of sannyas like that. We think of sannyas in terms of, you know, absolute freedom from sex and money and food. But here, sannyas is being used in terms of not only someone who's married and producing children, but someone who's a king. <laughs> so, uh, you know, traditionally, uh, those who are leaders in politics live a very opulent life. And it's part of their service to do so, in that they're representing the opulence and grandeur of the state, of the, and they're giving people a sense of nationalism and national pride and enthusiasm by being very opulent. And it's also a perk for them, because traditionally, the, especially the heads of countries were putting their lives on the line, the king, they would ride first in the battle. Of course, no one does this today. Well, nobody, but basically it's not done today. And they were risking their own lives for the country, so they got these, these kind of perks. And so we might, this is why Chaitanya Mahaprabhu wouldn't uh, be seen publicly associating with King Pratyaparudra, although the king was a great devotee. He ended up meeting with the king in the gardens outside of Gundicha when the king gave up his royal attire and where Chaitanya Mahaprabhu at least ostensibly didn't know that it was the king. Uh, because if a sannyasi is associating with a political leader, then people will think, oh, well, that sannyasi is then you know, going to get some sense enjoyment. So we could say, you know, a king epitomizes the idea of all of the opulences and especially a good food, lots of money, and uh, lots of uh, kings traditionally have uh, not even uh, constrained themselves with marriage. So it may seem very strange that Prithu Maharaj, who is a king and uh, is a householder with wife and children and so many things, is being here uh, talked of as a sannyas. So we can, although we understand sannyas in an external sense, and Mahaprabhu calls it external in terms of the Varna Dharma, sannyas is also understood, and Prabhupada's quoting the 18th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, as a mentality where one is no longer trying to be the owner or the enjoyer of this world, where one sees that Krishna is the owner and enjoyer of this world, and therefore one is completely free. One really has no responsibility because one's just acting on behalf of the Lord. It's the Lord's responsibility. You know, like Arjuna goes out and fights the battle, but it's Krishna's problem. It's not Arjuna's problem. We do our very best, and it looks like we're taking so much responsibility. It looks like we're working for a particular fruit. It looks like we're trying to enjoy the world, but we're not. We're not. Everything becomes play. Everything becomes play. We're, we're simply acting as Krishna's agents. He's the one who's doing everything, and for him it's all play. And this way, one's a sannyasi regardless of what one is. Now, externally taking sannyas does help one to become an internal sannyasi, although one shouldn't externally take sannyas uh, if one's not going to be able to keep the external regulations. But anybody can be a sannyasi. We think, keep thinking of Gadadhar Pandit, who saw Pundarik Vijanidhi and didn't understand how this wealthy person could possibly be a, a detached Vaishnava. But then uh, he understood. Uh, all he has to do is hear about the Lord's favor to Putana, and immediately he's in ecstasy. So it means his, his happiness was within. His happiness was irrespective of his silk bedding and so forth. So this is our aspiration. Our aspiration is to do everything for Krishna in bhakti yoga. And it may look like we're doing karma yoga, but we're really just doing the activities of bhakti for the satisfaction of the Lord, which has some similarity to karma yoga. And then freedom comes to us without our even aspiring for it. We just kind of wake up one day and go, oh, 
you know, I'm, I'm free. <laughs> How did that happen? It's not a particular interest. Oh, liberation is there whenever I want it. I, I have my relationship with Krishna. It's just a side, side perk that's not the main thing that's motivating us. So this is the life that we are offering in, the, in, our, in a Krishna conscious society. We're offering this life to everybody in the society. We're offering this life to anyone in the world to whatever extent they're willing to take it off, to take it up. And then the things in the world are like water on a lotus leaf. They don't really affect us. And we have a, a life of, we experience life as eternity, knowledge, and bliss. Even in this body <laughs> that's going to die, that's full of ignorance and full of suffering, that's not our experience of life if we're properly situated in bhakti yoga. So we have a little bit of time for questions and comments. Corrections? Muted. Additions? Unmuted. I, I really like your concept of kind of how things are just just to play with Krishna. That's really. And then I have a. Thank you. Any question? You yeah. gave the example of. Um, Sorry. Am I muted? You sort of went off and on. Go ahead. You said I gave the example of. Of a Pundari Pigeonity. Yes. And uh, somehow the question popped in my mind. I don't know how relevant it is to the class, but. Lord Chaitanya had warned. This session is no longer being recorded. The recording has started. Anyway, go on. (laughs) So, um, uh, Lord Chaitanya had warned the devotees that you would not be able to, you would not be able to recognize this great exalted devotee. Yes. uh, Because of his activities. Um, I don't. I don't remember, I haven't read this past time in a while, and I don't remember it ever being explained. Why was he acting in that way? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Probably, I mean, it's a reasonable guess that he had that was, he had some role in society. He had some role of service. I mean, we had Ramananda Roy, who was acting as the governor of Madras, and he also was living in opulence. So... One may get opulence by the grace of the Lord, and one may get opulence because one is having a particular service to do for the Lord. But it was so so far over the top with Pundarik Vijanidhi, he would look at himself in mirrors and smile at himself, and he had spittoons, and it was like he he appeared as if the ultimate Sanskritifier. I had thought, in this total speculation, that maybe just as much as... as, um, Jagannath um, Babaji would go to, to places where people would not want to go. He'd go around the latrine so that the materialists would stay away from him. And uh, I was thinking maybe a, a Pundarik was acting in such a way that, that, that people would not think that he's a great Vaishnava. I don't know, that was just total speculation. Well, that's certainly an interesting take on the matter, but I, I haven't read anything either, so I, I really I can't say anything with a Pramana. Sorry. But good question. I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly a very, uh, it's certainly a very good question. I mean, we have a problem in general with the personalities in Chaitanya Charitamrita. We did the personalities uh, even more so in Bhagavatam because it's so ancient that we often know very little about them other than what's in those literatures. Mm. I mean, with the personalities in Chaitanya Charitamrita, it's recent enough that it's possible to do other research and find out other things. When, you know, we talk about the Bhagavatam, it becomes almost impossible. And, you know, we have some things in the Bhagavatam where it's just listed a name, you know. Mm. Or, or one sentence, this was a great personality whose glories are still being sung at the present time. You know, you're like, uh, why? <laughs> so, uh, we, we do have this difficulty that you know, it's funny, when I was an edit, editor for Back to Godhead for 30 years, so people would sometimes submit articles about local programs in their own you know, temple and zone, and sometimes they would list names of people as if they were known to everyone who would be reading the article. And you're just like, you know, who is this person? What do they do? Why are they, why are they doing that? 
so yeah, we, we don't have the majority of the personalities mentioned in Chaitanya Charitamrita, we have little or no information about them. Uh, so, yeah, that's... Uh, so I have a question. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry, Prabhu, we have like a line here of questions. Oh my goodness. Kamalini Devi, she really wanted to ask, and then Ramananda has also in the chat, so I allow Kamalini Devi, please. Uh, okay, me. Kamalini, Haribo. Go ahead, Mataji. Well, now she's not speaking. Okay, so I guess we can wait and then Ramananda... Well, Ramananda has, when I hear Gyan Yoga, I immediately think Karma Mishra and that Karma Yoga is not an end in itself, but a mean to bring us to Bhakti. Is there a state as pure Karma Yoga, pure Gyan Yoga, pure Jan Yoga, etc.? When these are pure, are they Bhakti, or when pure, do they bring us to Bhakti? Okay. So it's explained that all forms of yoga have to have some drop of bhakti because you have to get permission from the Lord in order to achieve liberation. Uh, But they can be called ends in and of themselves uh, or they can be stepping stones. That depends. So the aim of one who's in karma yoga is really to have a kind of merging with the universal form and a kind of oneness with the universal form, a oneness with the universe. The aim of those in Jnana Yoga, generally, is to merge into the Brahman and the aims of those in Jnana Yoga is to merge with the Paramatma or to go live on the planet of the Paramatma. So they have different, of the Kshiradakrishai Vishnu, so these are the different aims of those and they can also be stepping stones to bhakti. By doing karma yoga, uh, it can bring you to bhakti. Doing jnana yoga can bring you to bhakti. Doing jnana yoga can bring you to bhakti. So that's, whereas bhakti is bhakti. It's not a stepping stone to something else. And the results of jnana yoga, jnana yoga, and karma yoga are, as Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita, are included in bhakti. And without bhakti, you can't achieve the results of the other. So, we really advise people just to take to bhakti. But having said that, the different kinds of yoga exist because people are different and they're attracted to different things. There are people who are going to be attracted to jnana yoga, jnana yoga, and karma yoga. And I, to be very honest, I even see within our International Society for Krishna Consciousness people who are really more attracted to those other kinds of yoga and they're doing some combination of those sort of yoga and bhakti. So although that's not what we recommend, that uh, can eventually bring those people to pure bhakti. And as far as preaching Krishna consciousness, uh, sometimes just like Prabhupada in this particular purport, is also talking about karma yoga. So sometimes in preaching Krishna consciousness, we may encourage people in some of the other forms of yoga if we see that that's what they're attached to and they're not going to be willing to take up bhakti. Or sometimes what happens is if we see that people are already attached to the other forms of yoga, we may emphasize the parts of bhakti that comprise, that involve jnana, or the parts of bhakti that involve karma, or the parts of bhakti that involve meditation and to bring the person who is attached to Jnana Yoga to do Jnana Yoga for Bhagavan, to do Jnana Yoga for Bhagavan, to do Karma Yoga for Bhagavan, which then starts to transition it into pure Bhakti. So we may, and Prabhupada's doing that in this purport. So we may use that as a kind of bridge. That's certainly a a, a Shastric bridge to pure Bhakti. Not everybody's going to be willing or, or attracted by by pure bhakti in the beginning. I hope that answers your question. Kamalini, are you want to ask a question now? Kamalini? Yes? No? Maybe? Yes, she's she's not there. Okay, so uh, we had Vitakta Madhava. Yes, Vitakta Madhava. So, uh, very, very nice class. Uh, I couldn't keep up. I'm going to listen to it again. Um, Prabhupada conflates karma yoga with bhakti in uh, Bhagavad Gita. Um, 
it's interesting in this purport that he uh, directly, uh, you know, announces that uh, these methods of karma yoga and bhakti yoga are being broadcast by the movement, the Krishna consciousness movement. So, uh, bhakti is, what I understand is Brahma Bhuta Prasanna, well, that's, you know, when you attain this uh, liberation, then you're, that, then you're qualified to perform bhakti. Before that, it's Buddha yoga, karma yoga. Is that, am I miss, missing something there? Um, well, it's interesting because that was Arjuna's question in the beginning of the 12th chapter, but let, let's just back up a little bit. Srila Prabhupada, remember that it's not that we have to give up, well, we'll back up even more than that. It's not that you have to give up karma again and dhyan. Karnagim, we have right? Anukalina Krishna Anushilanam Bhakti It starts with what? Anyavilasita Sunyam Karnagyana Anavritam. So karma, gyan, and dhyan, they are there, but they don't hover bhakti. There has to be no selfish desire, no desire for liberation. But karma, gyan, and dhyan can be there as long as they're not covering bhakti and it's still pure bhakti. So now let's move on to Srila Prabhupada. What I see Srila Prabhupada does, and he's doing in this purport, is he's using the karma portion of bhakti. Shilana means action. He's using that portion of bhakti and talking about it in terms of karma yoga. But it's really bhakti yoga. So Prabhupada will conflate karma yoga and bhakti yoga, or yan yoga and bhakti yoga, which is like buddhi yoga. He'll conflate it because bhakti yoga involves action that's dedicated to the Lord. Bhakti yoga involves studying philosophy to please the Lord. Bhakti yoga involves meditation. At least our Gayatri mantras are meditation. And Prabhupada often uh, talked about our Japa of the Hare Krishna mantra as meditation, not kirtan, but meditation. So it involves meditation or memorizing Shastra. Prabhupada would put in the category of, of meditation, of smarana. So it's included, and it doesn't make it separately karma yoga and separately dhyan yoga and separately dhyan yoga. It seems like Srila Prabhupada would take the Shastric references to karma yoga, dhyan yoga, and dhyan yoga and say, uh, do this in bhakti, and make it bhakti yoga. Because we really don't want to encourage people separately so much in karma yoga, dhyan yoga, and dhyan yoga. It's, especially in Kali Yuga, if people get wrapped up in these different kinds of yogas, they're they're likely to they're much more likely to fail than if they get involved in bhakti yoga. And it 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 just isn't suitable for most people. Now I love the question you asked about well before we're Brahma Bhutta, are we really doing bhakti? Maybe before Brahma Bhutta we're really doing the other kinds of yoga. And this was Arjuna's question in the beginning of the 12th chapter of Bhagavad Gita. He asked as a necessity, is it necessary before really doing bhakti that I have to do another kind of yoga? That I have to first be Brahma Bhutta? That's, that's what he's asking. Do I have to realize Brahman? Do I have to realize myself as Brahman before I can do bhakti? And then I do bhakti? Or can I do bhakti from the beginning? And Krishna is very clear. He says you can become Brahmabhuta through another method, which, yes, your question was so intelligently put, that as soon as I say I have to wait to do bhakti, at first I have to become Brahmabhuta, we're automatically implying that I have to become Brahmabhuta in another way. I have to become Brahmabhuta through karma yoga, jnana yoga, or dhyana yoga. And although that's acceptable... Krishna says, Klesho, it's going to be a lot of trouble to do it that way. Krishna says, better to do bhakti from the beginning. So when we do bhakti from the beginning, even though we're not Brahmabhuta, even though we're not Brahmabhuta, it's still bhakti. Now, there's ways of looking at this bhakti before Brahmabhuta. Uh, Those who are performing bhakti before achieving Brahmabhuta are often called uh, prakrita bhaktas or kanista bhaktas. 
but they're still called bhaktas. So the analogy is for unripe fruit. You know, when you have the mango growing on the tree, it's not, you don't want to eat it yet. But you can still say it's a mango. You know, I, I mean, obviously people do eat green mangoes and green tomatoes and things like that. And we all eat green peppers. But the idea is that although it is the thing, it is the thing. It's in an immature state and it will be, you know, it won't, it won't have the sweetness. It won't have the sweetness. So, but it's still bhakti. And in what sense is it bhakti? Is that one is working to think of Krishna. One is working to always remember Krishna and never forget him. One is working to have attachment for Krishna. One is not just giving up the fruits of one's work to the universe. One is not simply trying to become detached by uh, having some philosophical way of dealing with one's thoughts and feelings and desires. One is not simply trying to become detached and free from manipulating the life airs in the body in a mechanical way. One is doing everything for Krishna. We do find, we do find many people who think this way and who do not allow themselves to think of Krishna because they say, I'm not yet Paramabhuta. Um, okay, I, what I'm getting from this is it's Bhakti Mishra, no, was Karma Mishra Bhakti. So, so we, the Bhakti is the prominent feature, that's our approach, that's what we've been given. But it's mixed sometimes with Karma, sometimes with Gyan, of course there's even some Bandhagya. So, so sometimes there's a mixture, but our goal and our main purpose is Bhakti. Uh, that could be, but even that doesn't have to be. It could, it could be unmixed bhakti because there's activity, philosophy, and meditation even in pure bhakti. Just because I'm studying philosophy doesn't make it Gyanamishra bhakti. And just because I'm meditating doesn't make it Yogamishra bhakti. And just because I'm doing activities for Krishna doesn't make it Karmamishra bhakti. What makes it Karmamishra bhakti is if I'm working for my own liberation and I'm identifying with this world. I'm saying, I'm a doctor, I'm an engineer, I'm a dancer, I'm a sanitation worker, and I'm doing that for Krishna. Then we have, and, and I want to become liberated, then we have a karma bhakti situation. If I'm saying, I'm a spirit soul, I'm Krishna's servant, I'm externally working as a sanitation worker, I'm externally working as a doctor, and I'm doing everything for the glorification of the Lord. That's not karma mishra bhakti. We, we could say that all the work in the world is just part of the dasya section of the nine processes of devotion. And if I'm studying philosophy, thinking, well, if I study philosophy and I arrange my thoughts in this way, then I'll become liberated. And I'm also worshipping Krishna. That's kan mishra bhakti. But if in the process of worshipping Krishna I'm studying the Bhagavatam, which is full of philosophy, or I'm studying the Bhagavad Gita, which is full of philosophy, but I'm studying this philosophy to fall in love with Krishna. You know, just, just like the, you want to hear what your spouse does at work and you want to, it's just part of your love for your spouse. So we want to understand how Krishna is doing the material world, how this philosophy works together, not just so we can develop detachment, but as part of loving Krishna. That's not Gyanamishra Bhakti. And if I'm meditating, because these are mantras meditating on Krishna, if I'm meditating, oh, I, you know, om, oh, let me meditate on how beyond the material planets is the Lord, effulgence is the sun, and by his energies I am enlivened in my meditation on him, then that's not yoga mishra bhakti. But if I'm thinking by performance of yoga that I'm going to um, become liberated, and I'm also doing bhakti, that's yoga mishra bhakti. But we have, I've, I've met many, many devotees who are afraid to meditate on Krishna if they're not liberated. I run into it all the time. And, you know, they're basically in this place of Arjuna's question. That, 
you know, well, I, I'm not supposed to do bhakti until I'm liberated. All right, I should probably end here unless Kamalini, do you have a question? Okay. Yeah, Kamalini, you there? Yes. No, no, no. Well, I, I always love hearing from you. Okay. We'll pass the post office anyway. We could could pass the post office anyway. Oops. Um. All right. Let's do it. Well, I want fifteen. Kamalini, do you have a question? No, I guess not. Okay, thank you very much. Shil Prabhupada Ki Jai. Thank you very much, Madam Prabhupada.